Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Anthony Vizioni, a surgical oncologist at Cleveland Clinic Akron General. Dr. Vizioni was here previously to talk about trends in the care of patients with melanoma. That episode is still available for you to listen to. Today is here to talk to us about minimally invasive esophagectomy. So welcome back, Anthony. Oh, thank you so much. It is uh, my pleasure to be welcomed back. Happy to uh, talk to you again, Dr. Shepard. Excellent. So uh, maybe just uh, remind us, what, what is your role at uh, Cleveland Clinic Akron General? What do you do there? Yeah, so as your introduction kind of alluded to, I'm a surgical oncologist and I kind of wear several hats. So I specialize in the surgical care of cancer patients, obviously. And within that, my practice is fairly broad. So as you mentioned, I treat melanoma. I obviously do minimally invasive esophagectomy and treat patients with foregut cancers like gastric and esophageal cancers. And then I also kind of expand the spectrum for other disease sites as well. So uh, I wear several different hats around here. Very good. Well, today we're going to be talking about uh, minimally invasive esophagectomy, but we we may have a lot of different uh, backgrounds of, of, of providers listening to us uh, today. Give us an overview. Uh, surgical treatment of, of the esophagus is not simple, and it has gone through some some variations. Kind of give us a, a, a broad overview to start about surgical management of esophageal cancers. Yeah, it's... Um, been in flux recently as we kind of are trying to extend minimally invasive esophagectomy. But going way, way back, uh, an esophagectomy has kind of been this, the standard curative treatment for, um, for esophageal cancer, of which you know, there's several subtypes, but just including them all as one grouping, I think, is a fair assessment for today. So esophagectomy is and was a very uh, high-risk complex procedure. And so we have gravitated decades ago toward a more comprehensive multimodality treatment for most of our patients, uh, whether that be neoadjuvant chemotherapy or chemoradiation for the vast majority of patients who have locally advanced treatment. So now it's not just surgery, although obviously that's important. And from my perspective, it's not just the surgery that makes it, it's really a team approach that makes this important. And then the surgical care of these patients has, has evolved incredibly over the years too, even just from an open approach, how we manage those patients with fluid balances, with uh, operative monitoring, with post-operative care has evolved over the decades. And now as we've evolved into hopefully a more extensive use of minimally invasive approaches, that's once again been a new iteration. So it's um, thankfully an area that's constantly been moving forward over the years, but it's still just a very challenging cancer to treat and a challenging procedure to perform. And I guess just to, uh, you know, sort of just from an anatomic standpoint, you know, oftentimes think of something in the abdomen or in the chest and, you know, kind of remind us like, why exactly were the technical challenges in the past and why, why was it so difficult? Well, the esophagus kind of, like you say, it expands multiple cavities and it kind of goes all the way from your neck to your belly. So first and foremost, you know, it's been kind of the home of a lot of thoracic surgeons to kind of treat esophageal cancer. Uh, general surgeons have approached it as well or and surgical oncologists, but it 
it requires you to have kind of an expertise going from the back of the neck all the way down to the abdomen. So you have to kind of specialize in the treatment of esophageal cancer. So having that uh, comfort, comfort and expertise has been rare to find. Even thoracic surgeons don't necessarily want to specialize in that as well. So it's, it's really something that requires a niche practice. That being said, esophageal cancer it can be uh, a squamous cell cancer or an adenocarcinoma, and that can dictate a little bit where it is. So it can be in the mid or upper esophagus, or it can be down low in the esophagus toward the GE junction, that, that junction of the stomach. And so that can require uh, uh, different approaches to how we treat it, whether we're taking out just the lower half of the esophagus or lower two-thirds of the esophagus versus more or less taking out almost the entire thing. So you're dealing with a long organ, multiple body spaces, and then a, a surgical approach that may need to be adapted based on where the disease is. So it's really led to a lot of challenges and approaches to it. That being said, we do have multiple approaches, so we can address each of these issues as long as we kind of have the right hammer to hit the right nail with. So if we think about minimally invasive esophagectomy, um, tell us a little bit about what the procedure is and and, and maybe even a little bit about what led us to be able to do this? I mean, is there, was there technical innovations, for instance, that led to this as being an approach that we're able to offer now? As much as I love to be on the cutting edge of things and, and to really be pushing kind of our surgical care, minimally invasive esophagectomy has been around for a while, actually. So in the 90s, in the early 90s is really when we started to, I would say, experiment with it or try and push those limits. And it was born out of the necessity that an esophagectomy is a relatively morbid operation. It does come with a high complication rate. And that complication rate is often related to pulmonary complications. So the, the mother of invention, so to speak, on this situation was trying to reduce those pulmonary complications. So the first iterations of minimally invasive esophagectomy were really a full like laparotomy, a full abdominal operation, but then doing a, a thoroscopic approach, a minimally invasive approach in the chest to try and reduce our pulmonary complications. And that actually worked. You know, we did see reductions in pulmonary complications over this time frame. And then that kind of led to the impetus as we've had increasing utilization of minimally invasive approaches for colon surgery and other surgeries and being more facile at it, extending that minimally invasive approach to both the abdomen and the chest. So most esophagectomies, I would say, are performed using a abdominal and chest approach, what we call an Ivor Lewis esophagectomy, where we remove the lower kind of two-thirds or lower half of the esophagus, usually for these lower esophageal adenocarcinomas, which is the most common form of cancer. So kind of focusing a little bit on that perspective, the procedure has evolved then from that thoroscopic approach to a more full, minimally invasive approach. And we've been trying to drive down the complication rates from the pulmonary standpoint, then to the anastomotic leakage standpoint, uh, cardiac standpoint. All of these things have been actually improving as we get better and better with our minimally invasive approaches. And then hopefully the goal here is to then even advance that further with just better technique and potentially even robotic approaches. And then I guess, uh, what sort of tumors, what sort of esophageal cancers are best suited for a minimally invasive procedure compared with, um, we've had on, on a previous episode of this podcast, uh, discussion about endoscopic procedures. Um, so how, what, what are the pros and cons and what kind of tumors would fit into each category? 
Yeah. So as we've kind of gone minimally invasive for these more advanced cancers and, and more significant esophageal cancers, you're right. We, we've advanced it the other way too, going endoscopically more advanced too. So this is where that kind of team approach is really important, selecting the right disease for the right tool. And so unfortunately in our country, esophageal cancer is a relatively uh, uncommon cancer, but when it occurs, it is usually locally advanced. So we don't often find a lot of patients with a truly early, early stage esophageal cancer. Uh, and that just goes to the fact of they don't often present with symptoms at these early stages. And we don't necessarily have a very active screening for a lot of these. So the patients that are screened, maybe they have Barrett's esophagus or, or a known history of reflux and they get screened, they may actually have early detection of their esophageal cancers or precancerous lesions that are very amenable to endoscopic approaches. And those are in excellent utility at the Cleveland Clinic. And we really have a wide variety of ways to treat those from ablations to endoscopic resections. So those are kind of on those very early precancerous or very, very early cancer lesions. We kind of have a, a subset of patients who maybe they have a little bit more of an invasive cancer, not very early amenable to endoscopic resections, but maybe they're not fully locally advanced that would require a multimodality treatment approach. And they may benefit from just a upfront surgical approach. Then we can execute usually a minimally invasive approach for those patients. Then we have patients who have a little bit more of an advanced uh, esophageal cancer. Maybe they have some surrounding lymphadenopathy. And in those patients, we would recommend multimodality treatment with either chemotherapy and or chemoradiation, and then followed by an esophagectomy, usually to good effect and still for curative intent. And then we have patients who may have a more truly locally advanced tumor that's maybe invading into surrounding organs. And those are patients that then really carefully selecting them for their surgical approaches is that much more important because not every not every tumor is amenable to a good minimally invasive approach. Excellent. When when we think about these procedures from a patient perspective, looking at sort of endoscopic, minimally invasive, or a more extensive surgery um, that's not a minimally invasive procedure, what does that look like in terms of um, hospitalizations and and sort of recovery times? Yeah, I mean, these are, like I said, complex surgeries that do require what would be considered a little bit of a longer hospitalization. I would say on the average, you know, if uh, we do a straightforward, minimally invasive esophagectomy that has an uncomplicated course, six days in the hospital is not unusual. And that's kind of a, I think, a fairly brisk course, quite frankly, if you look at some of these national averages about a length of stay. When you kind of started to get into any kind of complications, obviously, that'll prolong things. And then an open approach, that can also prolong things a little bit too. So, you know, five to seven days in a hospital after this is not an unusual uh, time frame for, for a routine recovery. And then to fully have a patient kind of completely recovered from their surgery can take a couple months just to kind of get to a new baseline, a new normal for eating it takes a little while. You know, they're kind of been rerouted to a, a new lifestyle. And that can take a little bit, just the recovery from uh, getting their, their wind back, so to speak, and getting their energy levels up can also take a little while. So these are, these are big impactful operations, even in a minimally invasive approach. And that then dictates how we select our patients. You know, they have to be able to be healthy enough to undergo these surgery. And I guess what are the, some of the primary things that would sort of exclude a patient from being able to 
to have these procedures. You mentioned pulmonary complications with our earlier surgeries. What, I guess, what are the more common complications we see now and what are the sort of risk factors for patients that might make them a poor operative candidate? Yeah, and, and as I said, even as we've improved pulmonary complications, that still is a, a large driver of our, our concerns. So it's not unusual that an esophageal surgeon will routinely get pulmonary function tests on patients to make sure that it's safe enough to kind of enter their chest or to do an operation in the chest. So poor lung function, COPD, a lot of our esophageal cancer patients are also smokers. They may have some poor lung function. That may be a driver to say that maybe they're not a great candidate for surgery. Obviously, we have patients who have other comorbidities like heart disease or liver disease that can contribute to their overall health picture as well. And so when you have these kind of higher risk comorbid diseases, it does put your surgery at higher risk. Those are surgeries that, you know, if they're coming in with maybe a 33% complication rate, when you then start elevating those rates for a higher risk patient, it may actually mean that maybe doing surgery is not the best approach for them. And maybe we want to do things like definitive chemotherapy or definitive radiation for those patients to get the best uh, overall health for them. There is a relatively low but real rate of complete responses with chemo radiation. So it is a, a backup plan that we can have for them. So those drivers, particularly cardiopulmonary comorbidities, are really what drive us to make the decisions of, I think, who is a good candidate. Then, you know, tumor-specific factors also come into play as well. If a tumor is, uh, you know, invaded into certain surrounding structures like the aorta or the trachea, that may be a tumor that really is not amenable to resection versus minimal invasion into maybe the pericardium is then a candidate. So those obviously play a large factor as well. So it seems that surgical oncologists are often a, a pretty innovative group. And I must imagine during long surgeries, you're always thinking like, what if... <laughs> what, what what are those gaps as you do a procedure? Um, what are sort of the barriers to the next step and in, in, in new innovations and in, in techniques? Well, I, I'd like to think I thought of these, but I didn't. So ultimately, when it comes down to it, it's it's really those things that can drive access to care too. So a truly thoracoscopic and laparoscopic minimally evasive esophagectomy is a highly technical procedure, um, and its applicability to a broad range of surgeons is probably more limited. And it's also, it's a challenge. You know, when I do one of these procedures, it does take several hours. It is kind of a, a little bit of a, a physical tour de force, even for the surgeon. So this is where I see robotic surgery actually being uh, a good tool for us as surgeons and patients to maybe broaden the access of a minimally invasive approach a little bit of an easier approach on the surgeon to allow more of a uniform uh, procedure, kind of increase the consistency across patients as well. So from my perspective, increasing uh, robotic approaches, I think is going to be something we see a lot more of uh, from our practice here as well as across the country. Is there anything that's uh, sort of taking place within this area in terms of consideration of novel neoadjuvant approaches or things that might sort of make this the, the operation different? Yeah. So even though I'm a surgeon, that's probably a little bit more of an exciting topic too, is that we are classically uh, relying on chemoradiation for a lot of our esophageal cancer patients, but we may be seeing trends toward increasing the utilization of just neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which allows, I think, for good responses 
well, maybe decreasing some of the complications from radiation that we could see or some of the long-term consequences we can see. So that's one area that I think is um, in active use and, and active study. And then the uh, in interventions with biologics. So uh, Herceptin can also be uh, used as well as some of our uh, immunotherapies to bear on some of these patients. It requires a little bit more nuance than some things like melanoma, where we may be able to use it more broadly. We actually have to be guided more by uh, markers within the tumor to use immunotherapy. But currently, we are able to do that in an adjuvant or rescue setting, too. And, and using that more broadly, even in a neoadjuvant setting, I think is going to be an exciting time to see how we approach those patients as well. As we think about systemic therapies and as, as part of this multidisciplinary approach, um, with the current surgical management, what, what's the bigger concern in most patients, local recurrence or distant spread? Yeah, unfortunately, I think we've, we've done a fair job controlling local recurrence. It's still a problem and it's still something that creeps up, but this is a cancer that will often recur distantly. So I think this is where we have been seeing the integration of a multimodality approach be very important. You know, those very early stage cancers, I think they are treated well by surgery alone, but they're just very rare to find those patients. So in that case, that multimodality approach, that systemic therapy to reduce that risk of distant disease is, I think, really a, an important driver of overall care. Doubling back to something you mentioned earlier, I guess the easiest cancer to treat is the one that patient doesn't have. And so we think about screening, we think about catching yeah. things at an early stage. So um, do you think there's, you know, screening is tough because it's something that's rare, you know, you have to pick the right patients. Do you think there's a role for Increased screening, increased education of who needs to go through screening. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts in that area? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is something I definitely agree with you about. These are cancers that uh, we do know the risk factors for them, and we do have the ability to intervene. Um, maybe with colonoscopy, you know, a broad screening program, more or less, that's applicable to everybody, isn't as necessary for esophageal cancer. But I think we can pick out those patients who may benefit. And we do have screening protocols for those patients. So we do know that reflux disease is a driver of esophageal cancer. It's a driver of the precursors of those. And we can intervene on those precursors to then prevent the cancer. So something as simple as if you have heartburn and reflux, seeing your doctors, getting onto appropriate medical therapy, even surgical therapy for a reflux disease can actually lead to the prevention of these cancers down the road. And then if you have a diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus, which can be a precursor as well, to be adequately screened for that, which can involve upper endoscopy, which is fairly straightforward and tolerated very well. So there's I think good guidelines for us to follow, it's really getting the patients on board with them and to kind of adhere to them. And also to take a, a very large pool of patients who have reflux and, and heartburn and to bring to bear our screening appropriately, right? Because we don't necessarily need to screen everybody who takes an over-the-counter PPI for occasional heartburn. <laughs> well, you've offered some great advice and some excellent insight. And uh, thank you for being with us today. Oh, it is always my pleasure. Always happy to kind of talk about these things. It kind of gets me uh, excited to see our next patients. To make a direct online referral to our Tossic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. 
This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.